Welcome to episode 245 of Destination Linux. Now, whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, hey, this is the podcast for you. My name's Noah, and with me today are my co-hosts, Ryan, Michael, and Jill. Also, just off camera, over to the left and around the corner, but piped in directly from our open source Jitsi room, it's the glorious community. A fact-checking, ego-busting patrons, welcome! Welcome, guys. So happy to have you. On this week's episode, coming up with Destination Linux, we're going to discuss what's needed to take the Linux desktop to the finish line. You've been hearing it for years. This is the year of the Linux desktop. Well, we're taking a bold stance for Linux. Last year was the year of the Linux desktop. This is the year that we perfected. And then we're going to pay our respects to Sir Clive Sinclair with a very special treasure hunt. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All of this coming up right now on Destination Linux. This week in our community feedback, Richard writes us to say, greetings, DLN hosts. I just listened to episode 244 and I loved it, but it got me thinking about how we communicate about concerns with government and privacy, especially after the recent developments in Australia. We talk a lot in the privacy community about governments are being terrible, both in technical competence and being politically liberal on privacy and free software. I think it's worth talking about some of the governments that are doing things right in this space. And he specifically goes into details regarding Taiwan. Taiwan has a lot of really interesting policies in this area, most of it arising from Audrey Tang's work, forking government services with government civic hacking movements, reverse procurement, to upstream improvements, rapidly iterating on the changes governments make use of agile development for their electronic services. The list kind of goes on. They're having hackathons there with the community when they're doing voting processes. They're kind of using kind of smaller federated voting uh, pieces in case there are disagreements with some of the statements or public opinions in there so people can't troll it or game it and that type of thing. So it's kind of similar to kind of how a federation works in there. They're just doing a lot of interesting things when it comes to privacy. I was not aware of all the work Audrey Tang was doing. However, there'll be a link in the show notes to a video in an interview that kind of details some of this. I found it absolutely fascinating. They're pushing great free software, positive alternatives for privacy. They're actually ranked fifth in the world from some of the, the companies that go out there and kind of rank countries by their privacy policies and the work that they're doing. Wow. And they're ranked fifth, which is a very nice place to be. It'd be better to be first, but they're ranked fifth and they're coming up uh, in big ways and doing really innovative things to try to solve some of these solutions. Uh, Richard goes on to say, oh, and I think you passed over quite a good privacy-focused file and document hosting service in the episode, Open Source Self-Hostable Encrypted CryptPad. So if you're interested in that, you could check out cryptopad.fr. Live long and prosper, Richard there. So again, thank you, Richard, for sending this in. I was not aware of the work, Taiwan. I don't know if any of you were nope, was, was doing here in this mm -hmm. kind of privacy realm. It was really fascinating. To yeah, me. it's very cool, especially when the fact that they have, if you're going to make software for the government, they have a requirement that you have to have open APIs to even have, the, to even qualify to make software for the government. That's I, I never thought that I would look at a government's like, you know, well done. Good job on you. And uh, they are doing a ton of great work. So that's awesome. You know, we love hearing from you. The worldwide community Your audience spans multiple countries, multiple states. You're from all over the place. 
and we appreciate it. But for the show to continue, we need you to participate. So what we want you to do, we need you to get your official DLN mug. We need you to fill it with some coffee or bubbly and sit down at your nearest stool. Send an email to comments at linux.org. You want to participate in the community discussion? Well, buddy, do we have the answer for you? You can do that by going over to the DLN community forum at dlnform.com. Imagine where we got that name. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by, you guessed it, DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service. You know what they call that? DBAS in the biz. With managed Mongo database as a service, or DBAS, you can focus more on building scalable high-performance app and less on maintaining the database. You simply offload the MongoDB administration DigitalOcean. You let them handle all the provisioning and managing and scaling and updates and backups and security and all the stuff you don't want to do if you just want to get your stuff up and running. DigitalOcean built the service in partnership with MongoDB, and together they have ensured that you're going to have access to the latest release of MongoDB document databases they become available. Now, as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the global DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, it's better than free because when you go to DigitalOcean, DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash dln-mongo. That URL is do.co slash dln-mongo. You know what you're going to get when you visit that URL? $100. DigitalOcean is giving us, and then we're giving you, somebody's giving you $100 when you go to do.co slash dln-mongo. Why are they giving you $100? Because they know once you try out DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB service, you're never going to go back to managing database by hand. And so a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. Okay, I am so excited to discuss the next topic. I've been looking forward to this for a while, and this is a topic that has been uh, on a lot of people's minds in the Linux community, especially thanks to the announcement of Windows 11. The topic we are going to discuss this week is what will it take to get the Linux desktop to cross the finish line? Or in other words, what does Linux need for desktop domination? I think this is going to be an amazing topic because I have heard more now than ever on Reddit forums have nothing to do with Linux, have nothing to do with other operating system alternatives, but just technically minded forums talking about what's going on in the industry, discussing what people are going to do now that Windows 11 has changed a lot of its requirements, which include UEFI Secure Boot and TPM 2.0 in there. And the list of hardware requirements excludes most computers that are greater than five years of age. So that even includes a lot of Microsoft surface line, like they're, they're cutting their own lineup. And then I saw a news article recently talking about the fact that Microsoft, after all these people in uproar saying, okay, I'm going to look for something else because this 11 things looking horrendous have doubled down on it. Like this is what we're doing. We're going to make TPM 2.0 requirement and you're just going to have to deal with it. And this coupled with the increased concerns that people are starting to really in a big way, wake up to regarding privacy, I think means Linux has a very unique opportunity to take a large part of the desktop market. And unfortunately there are some people in the Linux community that have, for some whatever reason, an audience that make very irresponsible videos talking about Linux being doom and gloom and it's going to go away and all of this thing. And a lot of the proof that they utilize, I wouldn't even call it proof. It's really ridiculousness that they're spewing out um, recklessly is that, oh, the Linux desktop has a, Linux is such a small part of the desktop environment. So therefore, you know, Linux is going away. But I think as we'll talk about in a lot of 
this uh, coverage here, their Linux is growing in monumental ways. Things are changing at such a fast pace for the desktop. It's really the last frontier we have left to kind of fully take over. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's that's why today we want to discuss what we think needs to happen for a distro to be ready for the choice that you know people want it to be. So before we get into that, let's talk about how far we've come. Because Ryan mentioned about we've 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 come very far. And when I first started in Linux over 20 years ago, the landscape was it was different. It was it was quite different. And you know what? Um, story time. I was out in the world this week, and I know <laughs> leaving the bunker is rare. You're supposed to do that, Michael. But, uh, you know, it's dangerous. I get it, but this I did it this past Thursday. So I had a conversation with someone about computers. I mean, I couldn't help it. They had a Microsoft uh, Surface laptop with them, and I I, ha- I guess being on hardware addicts has changed me at least a little bit. So I asked them what they thought about the laptop, and they said that they liked it, and they said it was pretty cool, but they also said that they prefer Macs because they think it's easier. And of course, I steered the conversation to Linux, I mean, yeah, of course I would. And that's when a phrase that I like to refer to as the Linux thought monster popped up. Now, if you don't know what this is, this is a phrase that is commonly used for people who have heard uh, misconstrued information about Linux. For example, is something like, isn't Linux hard to use? Or I heard it's only for geeky tech people and that kind of thing. And I explained that that was true 20 years ago. But so much has changed since then that we've gone through like multiple eras of Linux from when it was, you know, when I first started to Linux or into now. And at this point, Linux is so much easier to use. And in many ways, it's easier than using Windows. And of course, I told them about Destination Linux podcast. Good, good. If you happen to be watching, sup? But uh, so the point of the story is Linux has never been in a better position than it is now. I mean, back in the Windows Vista days, Linux had a great opportunity to grab a ton of market share, but it wasn't really ready back then. But now, though, I think we are in a fantastic position, and I'd argue that we're ready now. And we've got a stu- like a ton of stuff that's changed this, you know, the new era of Linux because we got universal packaging with like flat packs and snaps and app images. We got Linux gaming just making a massive stride in just a few years. Man. Like we have St- Steam on Linux and, and Proton is on Linux now. And the Steam Deck is coming and it's powered by Linux. Like so much cool stuff. And also, of course, because Hardware Addicts is you know, made me look more at hardware. We got a ton of great options in the hardware space. We got System76, Tuxedo Computers, Slimbook, uh, Pine64, Raspberry Pi. And let's not forget like the big companies that are supporting Linux, like Lenovo and Dell have uh, Linux pre-installed options. And we even have people, like companies putting in a lot of effort in terms of like Wayland driver support, kernel contributions like AMD, Dell, and even NVIDIA. I know, right? right? NVIDIA, welcome. Welcome to the party. Glad to have you here. (laughs) So it's clear we've come very far since I got started in Linux. And actually, most of that stuff is, you know, just in the last couple of years, like four years or so, all of this stuff has been, it's like just like steamrolling to a new era, which is awesome. So let's get to the, the topic at hand. What is needed to take us over the finish line? So Ryan, what do you think? Man, I've got a couple of things here, but I want to say first, I think we're ready right now. Nothing changes right now, and Microsoft and these privacy issues continue going the way they are. I think Linux taking over the desktop is not a wish. It's just a matter of when, right? It's going to take time to get people to slowly migrate over, but we're starting to see that now. I remember going out into the streets with all my Linux gear on, and people would look at you like 
just ignore it. Like they didn't know what it meant. Now I have people stop me and start talking about Linux. Oh, I love your shirt. Oh, you use Linux. Random people that you wouldn't expect to really young folks, older folks will stop you cashiers and just start talking about, Oh, I love Linux. I use it at home or I have a friend that uses it. So it's, it's really spread in a way that I never imagined already in the last couple of years. And of course the work on the gaming side, I think is a big deal to a lot of people who want to use their computers when they get home outside of work for something other than more work. They want a game. They want to do something fun. They want entertainment. And so I think the gaming's a big piece. I'm going to step out on a limb here. I'm a user of GNOME. So this is in no way a hate. This, these next sentences are nothing about hate towards GNOME or dislike for GNOME. I'm a user of GNOME. I enjoy it. GNOME, in my opinion, though, should not be the default desktop environment for distros, especially the two big distros out there that a lot of people start with. That's an interesting uh, an interesting point. Why do you think it should it shouldn't be? You know, I don't think it shows off the power of Linux. When you talk about Linux and you're selling somebody on Linux, you're talking about the customization, the ability to do whatever you want, make it your own. And GNOME doesn't do that. In fact, GNOME removes as many options as possible. It reminds me back in the day when we would set up workstations that would all connect to a central server and the employee would log into mm. just a screen and a keyboard. They would log in and they would get this terminal and we kept it all locked down. And GNOME is very good for a server environment. If we're talking about servers, GNOME and, and, and having employees at a business, GNOME makes sense. You don't, as a IT person, want them messing with settings. You don't want them changing anything. In fact, you want to remove as many settings from them as possible so you're not having to support all those changes. When it comes to a desktop for a desktop computer environment, however, that is not what you want. You want people to be in there. They want to be able to explore. They want to be able to customize. They want to be able to change things. They want to be able to set their own shortcuts and things there. The other things is look at things like 4K support. I mean, GNOME is just now starting to get mm -hmm. to fractional scaling. I think there's like a hack you have to do to get it to even function fully. Like if you're a home user and you go and get a 2K or 4K monitor, and you still, on things like GNOME, can't do the fractional scaling without doing some weird hack, that is not a good experience, in my opinion. So I think when you look at something like Unity, which, by the way, had, what, fractional scaling five years ago or more? Oh, yeah, easily. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if, if distros like Fedora and others' only purpose is to try to get businesses to use it, GNOME's great. If the purpose is to get businesses and home users to utilize it, then they need to use a different, I'm not saying get rid of GNOME, saying use a different default mainstream desktop environment because GNOME is not for home users, for most yeah. home users. Yeah. Well, so as soon as they start uh, bringing in the ability of, of all the extensions already being installed default in the OS instead of having to install them yourself, that yeah, there will are make certain the ways that you could make yeah. GNOME actually good for the desktop, like if they had integrated extensions in. But based yeah. on all the rumblings and news going on right <laughs> now, where at first they were kind of going to double down and like make extensions more part of the environment, but now they're changing their mind and maybe mm -hmm. from one developer and not yeah. really. And there's just too much going on there when I could install KDE and have everything I need right there. I think a new user from a desktop going into an environment where you don't even have status icon tray 
is ludicrous. Like they're not going to enjoy that. They're not going to get it in the extension system. They're not going to get either. I think pipe wire next would be a big deal. I think we need to roll pipe wire as fast as humanly possible. And I love the work that Garuda and Fedora, especially Fedora is doing in making pipe wire mainstream because I think Linux could absolutely dominate and be the perfect audio engineers, paradise, people creating music uh, audio engineers who are developing or producing it uh, could use Linux full time with just a few small tweaks. And one of those tweaks would be right now when you use Pulse Audio and stuff and you start installing very professional or even consumer professional equipment, I should say, there are issues with Pulse Audio that happen that don't occur in Pipewire. Pipewire has some things that need to change, but I think if we go all in in Pipewire, that would make a big difference as well. Oh, yeah. I love that. As an, uh, like th there's... Pipewire is such an interesting project and such an, a, a great component. When I first heard of it, I was like, oh, I can't wait for this. And I expected it to be years. And then very quickly, I'm now using it all the time. And it's and it's been it was set up as the default for uh, Fedora, and it's been just fantastic having access to con uh, pro audio functionality, like the way with Carla and QJack control by using like mm -hmm. the Jack component stuff. Like there's so much cool stuff that you can use, and it takes almost no setup to do it in specific distros. Other distros distributions are not putting in the integration factor. They're, they don't have they have maybe Pipewire installed, so people you know see the because GNOME has a dependency of Pipewire, but it doesn't require all the different pieces. It just requires like one little piece. So there are some distributions that rip out a lot of the value of Pipewire when they ship it, and it isn't what it really is. So when people install Pipewire and try it out, they have a bad experience because they're not really experiencing Pipewire. Or there's other distributions that just don't have any integration features to you know make it a better experience. And when I see videos, people talking about like, uh, I've tried Pipewire and it's not usable and all this other stuff, they're using a distribution that has not made it work well. And yeah. it kind they're of- They're installing like it as a, a hack, not yeah. as an, it's not integrated into the main OS. And therefore they're not having that true experience that you would have with a with a distro that's actually worked to integrate it properly, right? Yeah, it's, it sets up like a, a weird uh, situation because it, it reminds me of Pulse Audio's situation when Pulse Audio just came out. There was this period of time where people started using it or implementing it wrong, or people started using it in a configuration it wasn't meant to be, and they just started saying it's terrible and you shouldn't use it. And the same kind of thing is happening again with Pipewire. Even though if you try it on a distribution that has put in that effort, then you see that it's fantastic. So uh, I just want people to say, if, if you want to try Pipewire, try it on a distribution like Fedora or OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. I think they're putting in a lot of effort on it too, to try it there so you can see what Pipewire is like rather than, you know, just setting up an install of like what you, because you might have good integration, you might not. It just depends. And I would rather people just experience it for what it's meant to be and not have to worry about doing the whole pulse audio, you know, reputational fiasco all over again. Cause I think Pipewire is awesome, but it does depend on what dish you're trying it on. Yeah. And speaking of audio, uh, Linux is actually the most plug and play OS in the world and even mm -hmm. works with old deprecated audio equipment that isn't supported by Mac OS or Windows anymore, including I am using a digital design inbox to mini USB audio interface. Um, that is, uh, about 15 years old, <laughs> mm -hmm. and it doesn't work on Mac and or Windows anymore. And it and it sounds beautiful, and it was a really high end uh, interface wow. at that time. That's very cool. And you know, I think the Linux distros really need to start capitalizing on 
the being the most plug and play OS in the world and make it known that most hardware just works out of the box on Linux and that the drivers are built in and you don't need to to install drivers like on Windows most of the time. <laughs> Yeah, when well, when I set up a printer and I yeah. just oh, oh I just install it, just connect it, it to the thing, and it's and it just there. I know. Like yeah. that is mind blowing. You talk about setting up a printer on Windows; it is just so infuriating. Yeah. Well, the amount of software in in the printer software in Windows has gotten to become a virus. Like yeah. it will mm-hmm. pop up constantly, like trying to get more information from you from a privacy standpoint. Wanting ink level uh, announcements, having to order the ink specifically from them. We'll go ahead and order it for you. Please order from it. Order ink from us, please. Oh my gosh! Like it's just constantly harassing you. Every or having five to seconds. buy new new ink because you used one color too much, right? And it yeah. won't let you do the rest. But I, I, <laughs> on the hardware side, I do think that this is an area of improvement again, and I won't spend a lot of time because. Gosh knows I've done this a billion times, uh, talked about this, but better, stronger partnerships with hardware manufacturers. I'll just leave it at that. Companies like Great. Pop! OS are probably the best I've seen in this regard. When I get a brand new video card, sometimes brand new is three to four months old and a lot of distros still won't work with it. I just think there needs to be stronger relationships there, whether it's the distro's fault or the hardware manufacturer's fault. Those relationships need to be developed. I think System76 has been one of the best in this regard in developing those relationships because generally if I can't boot it in any other distro, I can boot it in system 76's pop OS. And that to me is mm-hmm. quite amazing um, that, that they've established that. But Michael, one of the things that I think would take Linux forward is picking a message and sticking to it. When I think about this, I think about Apple. A lot of people hear mm-hmm. Apple's claims on privacy and they go, yeah, right. Whatever. It's all junk. doesn't matter. Apple's lying to you, but those are the really technical people. The rest of everyone listening to that message go, hey, this privacy and security thing seems like a big deal. All the nerds I know and geeks out there are talking about it and saying it's a big deal. And there's one company out there who are getting billboards, taking out newspaper ads, running commercials, talking about <laughs> privacy security, and that company's Apple. And so the first company you think of when you think of privacy and security, if you're a non-technical person, is Apple. In Linux, we don't pick a message. Is it customization? Is it privacy and security? What is it that makes Linux, right? What are one of the messages that we want to pick to? I think that as an ecosystem, we really need to pick a message and stick with that message and say, this is what we offer that none of the other options out there provide. Now, that doesn't mean we stick with it forever, but we need to get that word out like Apple did about one of the big benefits that Linux offers. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. great, great point. And it that you're talking about marketing. You're talking, and that this is my... This is my thing. Like design and marketing is something I am really passionate about in general, but also in conjunction with open source and Linux. At Visuex, we focus on presentation extensively because that's what most people notice in design and marketing are very big factors of that. And for for those that don't know, Visuex is my design and brand consultancy company. Um, And I've been doing design work of some sort for over 20 years and something that has consistently been true throughout that entire time. By the way, uh, Ryan said he's not going to put a lot of uh, time into the hardware thing because he could just go on forever. And I'm just going to tell you that I'm I'm going to go on forever. So uh, because <laughs> <laughs> don't, I don't you dare. Well, I don't talk about the design and marketing that much, and it's just like this is the perfect opportunity. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna. So with that said, the thing that uh, I've hear all the time over the years is that you know pe- what people see is ultimately the most important. That's not to say that development or engineering isn't important. Of course they are important. In fact, I believe that development features are 
probably the most important overall to a project. But the reason I say that design is ultimately the most important is solely because most people perceive quality through design and not through function. Pretty much everyone can tell you if they like the look of something without hesitation. But when it comes to code, most people are just totally lost. This is why the visuals and the overall user experience and that sort of thing is ultimately the most important to the user, I think, because it's the main thing that they can assess. And to be clear, I'm not saying designers are more important or anything like that. Designers and developers are obviously equally important because both provide a skill that is to make a project successful. So it's not that. Let me, let me give an example, like a real world example. I've had many clients for all types of industry, and there's this one thing that happens all the time when it comes to you know the visuals versus the function and that kind of thing. Let's say a client is impatient, which happens frequently, and wants to see this like screenshots or demos of the progress so far in the project. And I I just want to say I hate showing mid progress previews. I hate it, mm-hmm. but not because of the work isn't done, but rather because the conversations go exactly the same every time, or at least very similar every time. Hey, this isn't working. Hey, this isn't finished. Hey, I wanted this, not that. (laughs) Well, to which I always reply something along the lines of, all of these are on the roadmap. As I mentioned before, the work isn't ready. So to review it, you will find issues likely because I'm still working on the project. Mm -hmm. So this is why I show screenshots and not demos most of the time now, because when people mess around with the demos, they can you know, find something that I just haven't gotten to yet and be telling, do that, you know, this is not done or, you know, but if I show them a screenshot, like, oh, that looks great. So it's like that kind of perception is why design is so important. And it's, I think it's a, a very important thing that open source and Linux needs to consider. And going back to what Ryan was talking about in marketing, marketing, marketing is another thing I think is very important. I mean, I've been in marketing world for almost as many years as design and they kind of go hand in hand really. But unfortunately, Linux, it has a little bit of marketing efforts, but because they're so misconstrued and they're so kind of like, you know, there's a lot of contradictory stuff around it. It really kind of has zero marketing efforts because there's not a consistent thing like Ryan was talking about. I think privacy security is a really good one that people could benefit from. Uh, And I kind of have like a, a dream scenario about this, about marketing in Linux and open source. I've been thinking about this for a long time. And what I'd love to see is a collective effort from the biggest companies in Linux and open source in general to come together and fund an effort to improve the design and marketing of the ecosystem. I mean, I'd help them do that, by the way, just so you know. In fact, it would be an honor to do so. But if this happened, I think Linux could like thrive and do so very quickly. Because when we put our heads together in terms of like making the components better and, you know, creating all these different system values and like there's a lot of great stuff that's happened. And the big companies tend to collaborate on backend stuff. They tend to share code and development, like the core components of the system. And, you know, but that's where it seems to end instead of going all the way through and doing the marketing and that stuff together, too. I think it would be amazing if this became a thing because I think it can make a huge, huge impact. And like I said, I would love to be involved in that kind of effort. But even if I wasn't, I still would love to see it happen. You know, you call it a dream <laughs> scenario, but you're right. A lot of big businesses do this. You see this a lot in the agriculture world as well. Big sugar uh, companies that do farming and things, they'll come together as a collaboration, right? And create ads. I think the Got Milk thing is a collaboration of it companies yep. that produce mm-hmm. milk that basically wanted to get the ad, wanted to get it out there into 
the ecosystem that milk is good for you, provides protein, blah, 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 blah. So companies do this all the time where they come together because you're promoting, you're helping everybody at once, right? You're getting the message out. So if you took like a Red Hat and a Canonical or a Red Hat and a Sousa and put them together in a room and said, hey, why don't you take some money and put some marketing into just Linux as a message overall, right? And the advantages of it and ran some ad campaigns that way. And and please use like Michael or somebody to consult on that because I've seen some ads from some of these companies sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> there, but anyways, been, the point is, some efforts, it'd be really, yeah, it could be really beneficial, I think, to Linux as a whole. I agree completely. And also, it's funny that you mentioned like the whole got milk thing. It's because that was a marketing example of how it is effective in the worst way because that is not true. And there's other things like, for example, uh, the big sugar thing you mentioned. There was a huge campaign about like fats are the worst thing for you, but really it's sugar that is terrible for you. You don't want to have too much of that, whereas you kind of do need some fats in your diet and that sort of. So it's like the marketing is a very powerful thing and even it can be wielded very irresponsibly and uh, sadly oftentimes is. So that's why I want to be involved in some some kind of, you know, a collaborative effort to do this because it's a passion of mine to uh, do design and marketing, but also do it honestly, because that, that's the thing that isn't that super popular in the marketing world. But anyway, let's, I know that's a lofty goal for doing a collective design and marketing effort for Linux and open source. I want it for sure, but I know it's like a, that, that will take a lot of, you know, getting people involved in it. So I, I, I realize that I'm not one person. And that kind of thing would take more than I can personally do. So I'll put twenty dollars towards it. <laughs> thank you for your donation. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? I, I don't want to wait to help out the community. So uh, if you run an open source project, whether that's an app, uh, Linux distribution, or just whatever, I mean, you just if you like my advice and tips on visuals and like the user experience, send me an email, and I would love to help you. And to be clear, if your project is meant to improve the lives of others and through open source and that kind of thing. Then I'll help the I'll help you with advice and such for free. You don't have to worry about it. Just I I want to help the open source community, the Linux community in this way because it is something that I have a lot of experience with. And I'm just I'm really if you haven't noticed, I love Linux and want to help it. Well, hey Michael, I'm willing to throw my hat in there. You know all the visuals I do. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe yes, nobody wants. I, that. I okay, have fine. seen some of your visuals. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jill, <laughs> what do you think is needed to take Linux? to that next step, right over the finish line, because we're right there, right? Yeah, we're right, right there. there. Well, I think Valve is doing something right with the Steam Deck and introducing yes. people to Linux. Absolutely. And what was cool is when the mainstream tech media were called in to beta test the Steam Deck at Valve when it was announced, many said that using the desktop, which was is KDE Plasma, was easy to use because it was Windows-like. And many of them were Windows users who not only had ever use Linux, but didn't even know what, you know, of course, what the name of the desktop even was. And that is you know, th fascinating. Yeah. That, you know, I was really paying attention to that as I saw the um, like PC magazine people and a, and a bunch of the tech industry going in and then they were hooking up the Steam Deck, you know, to their monitors. And it was plug and play on the monitors. <laughs> this is and a big deal, Joel. That these companies we mentioned earlier, Epic <laughs> Online launching their anti-cheat support for Linux, BattleEye yes. confirming support for Linux. This is because of Valve and Steam Deck and, and exactly. Code Weavers and Wine, all of that work. But 
this is all of that coming to fruition. Now, you remember there were naysayers out there saying, oh, this is going to hurt Linux gaming. Linux gaming is going to die from this, blah, 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 blah. But look what's look, happened. This has yeah. all happened in weeks yes. from this and occurring because Valve came out, released an amazing hardware for amazing price. And, of course, the work from Code Weavers and everybody else producing this yeah. compatibility layer. And now you've got all of these gaming companies going to are looking at this as a serious environment to get their games on. They need to get their games on this. They want to make money off of this, right? I mean, that's the big driving force. And right. Linux is the place for that because Valve chose Linux. Yes. Yep. They could have chose Windows. They could easily have put <laughs> Windows on this by default. And most people would have been like, yeah, well, of course they did because that's where the biggest desktop market is. They didn't because I think yeah. there's a bigger movement there. The people over there at Valve... Are, they, they have something else in mind, and it's so important for the growth of Linux. Yeah, and and because, you know, they had some made a lot of mistakes with the Steam machines, but this time they are doing it right. They have collaboration with hardware manufacturers like AMD. They're doing software collab collaboration with developers. You know, yep. it's it it's huge. They They've tied everything together and now they have proton that'll run just about any game on linux mm -hmm. and the fact so, that they even made proton yeah. in the first place with co-weavers i exactly I, it feels like they were getting yeah. ready for the steam deck yeah, and we, like we know that <laughs> yeah it was for funny. sure <laughs> so steam deck is a, a big game changer and what's important i mean that that poem was not in, intentional uh, literally when it is yeah. intentional you will know <laughs> uh so the the thing about the you know it being a game changer is because if you look at the what Epic Games announced, they didn't just mm -hmm. say we're making EAC work with Proton. They said we're making it work with Proton and native builds for Linux. Yes. So when when EAC when EAC was purchased by Epic Games, I just basically threw up my hands like we'll never get it because <laughs> Epic Games is not known for their uh, cordial yeah. relationship with Linux. And when this was announced, mm -hmm. it made me go. Oh wow! Valve is even more awesome because they're ma they've made something that these kinds of companies just can't ignore. And hey. That is amazing, <laughs> yeah. and I want to give funny it, though. How it, how isn't it Tim Sweeney? Is it Tim Sweeney? It's Correct. Tim Sweeney, the CEO of uh, Epic oh, Games. Isn't it funny how he's out there on the Twitterverse and all the news articles talking about how dangerous it is to have these closed environments that's hurting his yes. Fortnite while right. he's doing and, that. And we need to have yeah. more open environments, and if there's only if there was an open environment where we could sell our stuff without these companies come. And I'm like, this is the dude who's been anti had some anti <laughs> yes. Linux. Se yeah. uh, sediments for a long time now coming out there begging the public to take it serious that there's all these closed environments of course they only care when it impacts them but look yeah whenever you want to jump on board we're happy to welcome you exactly welcome a little mm -hmm. bit on board i we're hope you find it comfy here linux is their new hotness and we can run yeah. we'll be able <laughs> to run rocket league on our steam deck that's yeah. true. I mean, Natively. I already still play Rocket League because, I mean, Epic Games, Proton, it, yeah. we've had some uh, ups and downs uh, throughout yes. the years. But, uh, you know, I I, wel I agree with Ryan. I welcome you back with open arms. Yes. Uh, well, not Absolutely. open arms because you know, they're a little bit open. I, I, I want to give you open arms, but right now I'll just give like a fist bump. And then I'm, I'm at the foot bump. I'm not even at fist bump level with them yet. Like I kind of yeah. do that little foot, foot bump. you know, that little foot <laughs> yeah, bump yeah, yeah, thing yeah, you see. Sure, yeah. Sure, yeah. Sure. I, 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 I like that. I like that. You know, you have a chance Epic games. Don't blow it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what else do you think is needed? Oh, though? so as we were, you know, talking about that, I was thinking about the distros that are really paving the way forward for Linux on the desktop. 
And uh, I have several. Uh, one is Manjaro. Yes, yeah. the Arch Desktop. 100% agree um, with that. Manjaro is doing an excellent do- job with the user interfaces um, with XFCE and GNOME. And the Manjaro and, ARM team, right? Yeah. And everything else. Oh, they're, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I enjoy Manjaro on my uh, Raspberry Pi. And uh, Pop OS. Pop OS, by the way, has to me the best implementation of the GNOME desktop. Hundred percent. They yeah. actually include extensions like Dash. Imagine that. Gee. <laughs> well, uh, to be clear, every distro includes extensions at this point. Yeah, even but yes. like System seventy six actually oh, takes oh. GNOME and turns it into oh, a yeah. real desktop environment that yeah. you, that a consumer would actually enjoy using. I agree. I'm in not taking tiling. away from them for that. I mean, in others to... put some <laughs> extensions in, but I, I think System seventy six. People make fun of me because I leave my or Pop OS. I leave my my distros by default, but like Pop OS, you could literally. Even the most yes, uh, it is very nice. perfectionist for making changes could literally just leave Pop! OS as is and have a fantastic experience. Yeah. It's very well done out of you the box. You even get tiling. It does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It does tiling and you can run it with a keyboard, <laughs> yeah. which is, which is but awesome. But they're even considering leaving the GNOME, right? Isn't that a rumor out there? I know they tweeted about what if we made another DE yeah. I'm not sure if they're yeah. leaving. They've considered making Well, maybe not one. leaving, but yeah. maybe adding a different desktop that choice. That would be great. Uh, they yeah. have talked about it. They've also talked about, uh, you know, about rolling releases as an option yes. and stuff. Like that would be super interesting. And System <laughs> 76, <it> me. <laughs> uh, please do so. That'd be awesome. Yes. Also, if you do choose another desktop environment, I mean, obviously I'm going to say Plasma because I'm a fan of Plasma really? and everybody. I know people, but <laughs> it's not because of that. It's not because just, just because I want a Plasma Pop OS. No, no, no. It's because they have an opportunity to make K-pop. So, you know, K-pop. Yes. so make, make, uh, like, I see, see what you did there. I told yeah. you you would know when it's a dad it's joke. It's kawaii, you know? <laughs> and the other distro is Fedora. Absolutely. Yeah. Is, is the Fedora desktop with Fedora 34 is, it has changed the Linux and world. How they have stepped up. Because <laughs> yes. a couple of years ago, if you were like, hey, recommend Fedora as a desktop, you know, for, for people, regular users want to use it in their home, I would have left you right out of the conversation. It just wasn't ready at all, yeah. in my opinion. I mean, uh, Fedora you, today, yeah. completely different story. Completely. Completely mm-hmm. different story. It is usable out of the box. It makes sense. It's easy to not only install, but configure. I, I just, I really like what Fedora has been up to lately. And a lot yeah. of the, I mean, in, to be, and it, it might seem like we're, we're like talking about make, making fun of GNOME or whatever. We're not. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about Fedora because the default option for Fedora is GNOME and they make a very good option for it. They even like the GNOME tour, the app that pops up now when you have mm-hmm. a GNOME. Yeah, system, that's that great. was started in Fedora. And it's yeah. like, it's, it's such a good idea that GNOME picked it up, which is awesome. I mean, that's one of the things I was talking about the collaboration stuff. Having these things being able to make everything better is what's awesome about Linux. Uh, but Fedora has been doing a great job. And uh, I'm such a, such a fan of it that I have been using Fedora, well, KDE span of Fedora for like a year now. And uh, I think Fedora has changed drastically. Like it, there was, like Ryan said a few years ago, it was hit or miss. And like a yeah. few years before that, it was kind of hit or miss or even maybe a little worse. But, you know, I, I started like wanting to use Fedora for a while, you know, 
like when Beefy Miracle was out, which one of the reasons I wanted to, because it was such a great code name. But uh, I also wanted to use it because I just wanted to have that, you know, the the feet, the, some of the applications that I would want to use were made only for Rail and CentOS and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. some st- compatibility with Fedora is like, would be ideal. And then just last year, I was talking to one of the Fedora developers and they they convinced me like Fedora is at that point now. So when I switched, I was like, oh, Fedora is at that point now. Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, P- Pipewire and Wayland. I mean, come on, they made it work. <laughs> first. They've done incredible things there. <laughs> Absolutely. And I also have chosen the Debian based Raspberry Pi OS. Okay. With their That's Pixel desktop. Choice. Yeah. And there, there's a reason because the Raspberry Pi, you know, being the most sold computer in the world, is mm. bringing an easy to use, stable, and slim Linux desktop to the average user. Which has the advantage of bringing, you know, having letting consumers realize that this operating system they are using on their low-powered Raspberry Pi computers, they can install on their older computers to keep them working and out of the landfills. I wonder how many Raspberry Pi users have no idea they're using Linux every day. Like yeah, the ones that are out yeah. there modding, running commands <laughs> in the terminal, and they have no idea that this thing they're using is Linux. I think it would probably be a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, Raspberry Pi is so... Uh, it's it's so it's so mainstream. widely known. It's so yeah. mainstream. Yeah, it's like it's such a great device because it not only is it great for you know learning stuff on. You can use it for thousands of different things. You want to create an appliance for a set top box? Sure, put Kobe yeah. on there. Exactly. Like so many great things you can do with the Raspberry Pi. It's you know it's amazing, and I think it's a great point about putting it in here because it is a, a something that is a good way to introduce someone to Linux that also doesn't mm-hmm. cost hardly anything to do so. So I, the only thing about the Raspberry Pi OS that I would wish they would do is not use LXDE because <laughs> LXDE is pretty much deprecated, so they're like the only ones working yeah. on it. And I would rather them do like look into LXQt or something like that because there's a lot of great options for that. Go ahead and say KDE Plasma. Well, KDE Plasma <laughs> does run just fine on a, on a, on a Raspberry Pi. I'm, it does, I, yeah. Know, it does, but you uh, know, if they want to stay even lighter, LXQt is an option. Just, you know, just put it out there. But the Raspberry uh, Pi, as a suggestion, is uh, I think that's a great point to put in there. So again, this is probably a good moment to say, to be clear, I think Linux, as it's going right now, like we just talked yeah. about with Steam Deck, Raspberry Pi is going to step over the finish line on its own. These are things that I think could make it happen quicker. Noah, what do you think out of all the things we talked about? So I think I think it comes down to an, uh, an uh, three basic things. I think one is the hardware partnerships. And we've seen this not just with System76, but we've seen it with Dell. We've seen it with Tuxedo Computers. We've seen it with a number of different uh, brands that have come out and said, hey, you know, we're going to go find a source for computers and then we're going to build them specifically to run Linux. When you start getting into that mainstream where you have the Lenovo's, where you have the Dell's coming and shipping with Linux, this does something extreme, right? Because now you have the opportunity to walk into your boss's office and say, hey, the next time we iterate our laptops, I would like to request this specific model, right? That option just doesn't exist. If you're saying to your boss, hey, I want you to order the same XPS 13 that, that Bob has over there, and then I want to install this homemade operating system on it, right? It just doesn't have the same ring as, hey, I want to order this computer from Dell with the Sputnik project, and I want it to show up with Linux pre-installed. I think the second thing that comes with that is branding and support. So this kind of ties into the hardware side, right? From the standpoint that if I order a computer, I have to believe and I have to know that it's supported. And we work with a number of different lawyers and and doctors and, and different business professionals. Uh, we set up an engineering firm. 
who we've been working with them for the past few weeks, and they entirely use Linux. And part of that was the ability to get support and get questions answered and say, hey, I know how to fix this. I know how to solve this problem on Linux. So now you can go and do that. As these companies like Dell get into that realm, then they start offering that kind of support. But I think that branding and support uh, is what carries people forward. Coming back to kind of what you were saying originally, Ryan, with Apple, they have a very consistent marketing message. And so they're very inviting to get new users in and they, they tell people, hey, it's okay. This is for you. We value the same things you do and we provide the solutions that you're looking for. If we did that or if we do that with Linux, that's what's going to take Linux from being an acceptable operating system to where, and this is absolutely true, if I installed Kubuntu on a machine next to Windows 11 and set them both in front of a 70-year-old woman – probably they wouldn't know one from the other. If I just told people, hey, here's the latest version of Kubuntu. Look, it's Windows 12. They would click on it and be like, oh, Windows 12. Yeah, it just looks it's exactly looking good. Like, it's like what I thought Windows 12 was going to look like. Yeah. You know, and so we see that happening. Um, and that's because people have really let go and reset their expectations. And part of that is a good thing. And part of that is a bad thing. The good side of that is it's allowed Linux to succeed, whereas before we would have had to have a bunch of local software. I think the downside to that is part of that success is due to the fact that everything happens inside of Chrome or Firefox these days, and it all comes to us as software as a service. So now the endpoint, the operating system, the computer really isn't so much relevant so much as it is, am I on Office 365 or am I on G Suite? Both work inside of a browser, both allow you to get all your work done. But it's a software as a service. And so that has kind of taken us away from the our, our, our freedom perspective and our ownership perspective. And I point that out to say that I think as we discuss what it means to bring Linux through to the finish line, I think, yes, it's important to look at the blocking and tackling as to how we accomplish that. How do we advance the football down the field and how do we make that happen? I also think it's important that we start with the end in mind. The reason that this operating system has become so prolific, the reason that you and I and Michael and Jill, the reason that we've gotten to the point of really liking this operating system and becoming very passionate about it and spending a lot of time learning about it and investing in the community is precisely because it holds the same values that we hold. It holds the values of privacy and true security and the ability to own the thing that we're working on. If we get so lost in the blocking and tackling that we get sidetracked by the branding or sidetracked with the hardware partnership or sidetracked with the community prevalence, which I'll get to in a second, those are the kind of things that I think actually take us a step back. So as we push forward through that last Hoorah. And as we bring Linux into the limelight and into the mainstream, I would say more than anything, community prevalence is what is going to sell Linux. When people can walk around and look at their neighbor and say, oh, that guy's using it, works just fine. Oh, she's using it, works just fine. That does way more for the marketing of Linux than any amount of branding or any amount of desktop or any amount of videos or social media posts, any of it is going to do. One of the reasons that people started switching from Windows over to Mac is they knew somebody that did that. Right. And so it was easy for them to get into that on ramp. So I think community prevalence, hardware, and branding and support are the, are the three major things that we have to look at if we want to bring Linux in uh, to the limelight. I would just suggest that we do that with the end in mind. You know, I think that was all really well said. And the community, uh, we mentioned this, I don't know if it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, really needs to, when we talk about you know, oh, I know so-and-so used this, so now I'm going to use it, whether that be Apple or hopefully Linux in the future. The community really needs to be sure we're not eating our own. Mm. Uh, 
when when we talk about things like universal package management options, this can create a lot of discourse. That's fine. That's good. Like questioning, for instance, should GNOME be the primary desktop environment for all distros? It's really questioning, is that the right foot that we want to put forward? It's not saying that's a terrible desktop environment. Don't right. ever dare use it. It's horrible. The people who work on it. None of that nonsense that people right. like to go down the rabbit's hole with. We're just talking about fundamentally what we're putting our best foot forward with. I think something like KDE is more of a flagship introduction to it. But as a mm. community, we have to be very careful about not eating our own so that people don't go look over there and they're like, well, I'm thinking about installing this Ubuntu. Oh my gosh, let me tell you about Canonical. They're this evil demon empire. And then all of these people <laughs> that get that, that somehow get yeah. followers, <laughs> they go and put these stupid videos out there because they want to get clicks and they want to take the community's money and they want to use the community. That's all they care about is using the community. Create these videos out there to get clicks and talking about Linux desktop is dead. Linux just, just dying, all this stuff just for clickbait. And people see that and it hurts Linux and it mm. hurts growth and it stops us from moving forward. And the more people that click on it and view it, the more it's going to get recommended to people. And then everyone's going to look over there like in the Monty Python scene where he goes, in fact, let's not go to Camelot. They're crazy there. That's what people are going to look at with Linux because we have all of these people going into these vast conspiracy theories or craziness and people who don't truly care about open source being the ones that have a voice promoting it. I Very well agree. said. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Yep. That I think that what you're saying is about the community thing is a very important piece of it. Also, like the the fact that just because you don't like something doesn't make it bad or doesn't make it wrong. There's a I had someone comment on a video uh, because I said something and it's like you're wrong about this. Like that's not something you'd be wrong about. It's just an opinion. So you can you could disagree with my opinion, but that doesn't make me wrong. But it also applies to like you know when people think that I don't like GNOME. I've had people like, why do you hate GNOME? Like I I don't hate GNOME. I, I I prefer Plasma because I love the amount of customizations that I have. But if someone doesn't need that, then they they could use whatever they want. It's just like it's my preference. But I do think that GNOME makes a lot of great stuff. I mean, there's a lot of applications they make that are awesome. And if you don't know, GNOME is the GNOME Foundation or whatever is behind. Flat packs and flat packs are awesome. Are amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I mm -hmm. I prefer flat packs every single time. I mean, if I can't get the native one, I, I, I yeah, it depends on it. It depends on the different application. Native flat pack app image. I'm actually snap. kind of. I just ranked them. Native and flat pack for me are very close. It depends on what the application is, and I'm I'm totally comfortable if it is a flat pack. And the other ones I'll still use if I if I have to. But I mean, flat pack I'm a big fan of and. And it's it's kind of like some people look at it as, you know, if you don't like one thing that someone makes, you automatically don't like everything that they make. And that is not the case because there is a lot of great stuff by so many different projects. And 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 also, you know, you you have, the more you're in the space, the more you learn how much stuff is being made by these different organizations that you might yeah. not even know about. So there's you mainly lots of look at stuff. them as they just do a desktop environment or something yeah, like that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think we hit on some really important topics that would move this forward, but we want to hear from you, the community. Absolutely. So head to our DLN forum yeah. and tell us what things you think are needed to move desktop over the finish line there. Because I'll be interested to see how many folks agree or maybe have different options out there that they think need to change for Linux to continue its growth. Absolutely. 
This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. So get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN because Bitwarden is an awesome piece of software. They are uh, they create a password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. And how does it do that? Well, they create multiple different types of tools. They have a secured vault to store all your passwords in. They automatically generate the passwords for you and even automatically fill in passwords on login forms so you don't have to do that. And it works on so many different types of devices. So if you want to use it on your web browser or your mobile phone or your tablet or your desktop application or even on the command line, you can use all of those with Bitwarden and get access to having the secured vault and really easy to get the data from it. And also Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only person with access to your data, which is super important. The local encryption is what makes me comfortable to tell you about Bitwarden because it makes Bitwarden so, so powerful. In addition to that, it's also an open source project and they care a lot about open source. So if you care about open source and you care about having your data private, check it out, bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you could get started for free? Well, you can, but I also think you want to check out their premium account because there's a lot of great features and it starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right. Less than a dollar per month gets you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Priority Customer Service, and so much more. And also they have some new services like the Bitwarden Send feature, so much. And also check out the business accounts or the family accounts so you can help people get started with their Bitwarden accounts and it's so easy to onboard people with that. And it's just its just amazing. Check it out. Make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with Bitwarden. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. So this week we wanted to pay a very special tribute to Sir Clive Sinclair. Now Clive passed, unfortunately, at the age of 81. This was all pointed out on our discourse forum by Verit Tenuta. Um, and this individual has a very unique connection to Linus Torvalds himself. And some of the inventions that this man is responsible for are just absolutely amazing. Clive is described as an English entrepreneur and inventor, most commonly being known as a pioneer in the computing industry. He's the founder of several companies that developed consumer electronics from the 1970s through the early 1980s. Uh, in fact, there is a fantastic video out there where somebody stops Linus at a zoo. Like he's just trying <laughs> mm-hmm. to go to the zoo yeah. and somebody stops him at the zoo to talk to him. And Linus stops to talk to him about this Sinclair QL because that was what the whole discussion really focused on, which was one of the first machines that Linus learned programming on. He mentions in this interview and the fact that he actually wrote his own assembler and his own editor on this machine. Now, Mm -hmm. Clive produced the very first slimline electronic pocket calculator, the Sinclair Executive in 1972, moved on to production of home computers in 1980, producing the Sinclair ZX80, UK's first mass market home computer for less than 100 euros, or as I like to call it, monopoly money, if Seb was here. And in the early (laughs) 1980s, the ZX81, the ZX Spectrum with Sinclair Research LTD, Now, the Sinclair QL specs are really interesting here because this is the machine he talks about with Linus. And it's the introductory price was 399 euros, which would be equivalent of 1,292 euros in 2019. It used Sinclair QDOS, which I'm not even familiar with that operating system. Um, But it also had a CPU called a 68008, which ran at a whopping 7.5 
megahertz. Oh, it had fast, storage. Ryan. That was super <laughs> fast back yeah. then, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's storage. It had tons of it. The graphics, 256 by 256. So you got eight colors in that, a whole eight colors you could use. And eight. then the connectivity expansion slot, ROM cartridge socket, dual RS-232 ports, which cracks me up because, Michael, you had a laptop that had that same port on there. Only one, though. Uh, as, yeah, only so one. Uh, proprietary QLAN. Um, so anyways, this release date of this was January 12th, 1984. And like I said, this is some amazing technology for back then. But what makes this tribute, I think, even more amazing is that, Jill, you have a very special treasure hunt in store with us today yes. because you actually <laughs> own one of Clive's creations. Yes, I sure do. Clive Sinclair was was born in England in 1940. He had a knack for creating gadgets and in 1961 founded Sinclair Radionics Limited. And despite receiving a knighthood in 1983 for his contributions to the UK's computer industry and being a pioneer in the field of consumer electronics, Sinclair preferred his slide rule to a calculator. <laughs> that's that's nice. telling. And, you know, he said he he found the internet and email annoying and didn't use them. <laughs> Don't we both? I yeah. agree with him. <laughs> so yeah. he was very old school. Yeah, as Ryan was saying, uh, Clive Sinclair, uh, pa- he actually passed last week on Thursday, September 16. And, you know, as I was taking out computers from this room, my computer hardware museum to remodel it, I ran across a special computer the week prior and was thinking about how innovative Clive was in computing and electronics in general. He not only invented the pocket calculator, as Ryan says, said, but made portable TVs, watches, inexpensive computers, and even invented a space-age-looking early electric vehicle that was used to carry a single passenger. It's really quite cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they weren't just functional, but beautifully designed and ended up on display in museums. And for me, you know, as a kid, I had a sleek Sinclair watch, not unlike this one here. This is not the one from when I was a kid, but this is a Sinclair watch. Mm, and look just that. look at the beautiful, look at how beautifully designed it is. And... You know, my dad had a Sinclair portable TV, which I loved. That's uh, one we used on our uh, travels so I can watch TV shows when we were camping. <laughs> and you probably had an antenna you had to move around on yes. the top of it to try to or like, grab it ears. Or like grab yeah. it and hold one foot up and like, oh. Uh, yeah. Well, that was the kid's job. When you had kids, they became your antenna. Yeah. That was like, their, that's the whole reason you had kids back then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So here in the U.S., we didn't have many of the vanilla Sinclair computers to buy, unless you were lucky to find a U.S. version of the ZX80, or as the British like to call them, the ZX80s. Um, They were sold, of course, to the British market. Instead, we had the tiny Timex Sinclair 1000 computer, or the TS-1000, which was the first computer manufactured by a joint venture between Timex Corporation and Sinclair Research. Whoa, Joe, wasn't that the name of a Terminator? T1 uh, Terminator? Yes, yeah. yeah. Oh, Whoa. That's scary. <laughs> <laughs> that's scary. So awesome. the Timex Sinclair was released in July of 1982. 
And I'm going to show it to you in the box. Ooh. Ooh. We get an unboxing from 1982. (laughs) The box is a little beat up. But here it is. The computer is actually in beautiful condition. (laughs) Nice. That's awesome. And what's cool is that this little Timelix Sinclair 1000 is a slightly modified version of the Sinclair ZX81, but with an NTSC RF modulator for use here in the U.S. instead of the uh, the PAL modulator for European TVs. And the Timeless, Timex Sinclair doubled the onboard RAM from one kilobyte to a full two kilobytes. Whoa, <laughs> slow down there. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, I think I'm going to take it out of the box and show it to you. All right. Don't drop it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't drop it. It's amazing you have the original box for that. How cool. Yeah. Ryan is very, definitely amazed because every time he opens something, he's like, oh, box. I rip the box and then <laughs> throw it behind me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, for all my vintage computers, I, I keep, if I have the original boxes, I definitely keep them because that's part of the collectability. Yeah. <laughs> so, you got a manual there. Yeah. Okay, kids, that's a manual. What used to happen instead of a little piece of paper, it said go online and read this yes. thing in a format that's not really enjoyable <laughs> to read on. They would include a paper version of a manual. It's also so not enjoyable read to read that on. And get <laughs> which, is, which is a yeah. big stack of papers, which is not enjoyable to read on. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you throw this- that away. Yeah. So that was your whole computer with the keyboard built on top, and then you would yes. put that into a monitor. Correct. And a you television. have your keyboard built in and all the components inside. Very cool. Yeah. That looks like it's got really nice spaced keys, too, which is more I can save for a lot of laptops these days. Yeah, uh, very true. But the membrane keyboard is a challenge to use. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So, And there are reasons why it has a membrane keyboard. It was cost. So um, this little computer, the Timex Sinclair 1000, was launched in July of 1982 with a price of $99.95, making it the cheapest home computer at the time. Mm. And, of course, one of the smallest. (laughs) It was advertised as the first computer under $100. And I had actually used Sinclair Basics on a Timex Sinclair in school as a preteen to continue to learn programming on. Um, I had access to, you know, Amigas and uh, Commodore 64s and IBMs and Ataris. And it was cool because I could play with BASIC on any of those computers. But, you know, this was actually one of my favorites. I liked playing Frogger on it because the Frogger was was so low res <laughs> and black and white. <laughs> so I played Frogger on it and Space Invaders and other games on it. Nice. Did you but find I yourself mean, better on the low resolution version of Frogger than say I, on an Atari twenty six hundred? Yeah, um, actually, yes, because I, I I don't have great vision and everything all everything was uh, large size, <laughs> so yeah. so that was really nice. And what's cool is just after the Timex Sinclair 1000 launched in July of 1982, the more powerful $600 Commodore 64 launched in August the same year. And of course, the Commodore 64 dominated the computer industry with its higher quality color graphics and great sound system. <laughs> that was the computer most of the kids in my class all wanted to use. Right. <laughs> so... What I was always impressed by this, and and the reason I had a special love, the Timex Sinclair, is with its black and white quirkiness, its mini size, unique membrane keyboard, (laughs) 
<laughs> Most of the computers at the time had really nice keyboards on them that were clicky. That's a nice way <laughs> of saying. That looked nice, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah it looks unique. It looks nice. So, in this little computer was superseded by the TS fifteen hundred in July nineteen eighty three, which um, was a larger version of the 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 one thousand, and it had more memory and a better keyboard. And um, the TS-2068 in November of 1983. And actually, the TS-2068 was unique because it was the first Timex Sinclair that was not a clone of a Sinclair product Hmm. and was based on the popular Sinclair ZX Spectrum 48K, or the Speccy, (laughs) as a lot of us call it. And um, that's, of course, the computer that Clive Sinclair is really famous for. And uh, but with that computer, there were major changes: a cartridge port, different memory configuration, and and it had a sound chip. <laughs> so they were listening to the consumers. Obviously, yes. they were like, "Hey, we need more. We need sound, and we need some more ports and a better keyboard yeah. and things." And they improved that. Yeah, and and that's it. You know, they they tried to make a you know made, they were successful in making a computer under a hundred dollars. Yeah. And they had to do that. They had to take some things out. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, actually, I yeah. have a really quick story uh, of when I was a kid. I have absolutely no idea which model it was, but I remember being like five or six and having a Sinclair uh, c- computer, and I didn't know what I was looking at at the time. I didn't even know oh. it was a British company until like decades later. And when I, and I remember back on it, and it was, th- and I was thinking, it's like this is so small compared to every other computer I had used that it didn't it seemed like it was a toy or something. I mean it looks like a little kid's computer. Yeah, what is those things where you type in a word, the spelling little device, you know, you speak and you, spell. Speak and oh, yeah, spell. Speak Thank and you know. That's what it yeah, looks like that's to That's one me. of my favorite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like a black version <laughs> of the red speak and spell. I, right. I love my speak, the speak and spell. Speak and spell probably had a bigger CPU or more powerful than this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it actually, the speak and spell had a worse keyboard than this one. At least this one That's is true. sensitive. Yeah. So you can get worse. You can't get so worse. You actually, you actually did programming on this, Jill, did yes, you say? I sure did. Very nice. That's very cool that you actually utilized this Sinclair mm-hmm. to write programs in. And do you still boot this thing up today? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Man, that's awesome. So- <laughs> So um, getting back to a little bit of the history about the Timex Sinclair uh, 2068, just want to mention that that was the last system that Timex Sinclair made as uh, they actually, Timex dropped out of the computer market a few months later in the spring of 1984. Hmm. And Sinclair continued to make computers, but this was the last one that was, that was the last one that was marketed to the U.S. And the CPU on this was a lot slower than... Than the Sinclair QL. It's, it uses a Zilog Z80A at 3.25 megahertz. Wow. <laughs> it didn't even have a turbo button, did it? Yeah, no you turbo buttons here. 3.5 or 3.8, 3.2. <laughs> and it has two kilo- kilobytes of memory. Yes, that's kilobytes of memory. And it displays 22 by 32 resolution text, which uses the coax RF connector on a TV. Still powerful so, enough to run Michael AI. It's still powerful, absolutely, to run Michael AI. A very efficient bot right there. 
Yep. (laughs) And the ports included, uh, there were ports for memory expansion on the back and for uh, cassettes. And the cassette recorder for was used for data storage. It had some onboard memory, so you can save small programs to it, but you needed a cassette recorder to to save big ones. It had uh, the peripherals. It came, uh, one of the big ones a lot of people love is the 16K RAM pack, which you stick on the back. They actually thought about upgradability back then, which was nice. Yes. Yeah. And it also had, uh, you had the option of buying a thermal printer for it for hard copy, which was really cool. And what's also really unique is a single circuit board with only four chips. And that was unique from the Sinclairs in uh, Britain, uh, which were bigger, you know, had had more chips. So they really made it compact and that was able to allow them to make it cheaper as well. And as I was saying earlier, this is the membrane keyboard. And what's really cool about it, it has several shortcuts for use in Sinclair Basic. And like, for instance, the P key is also the print and tab command. The R key is the run command. The G key is the go-to command. The F key is the for command. Everyone remember (laughs) doing if, then, for, next statements? Yeah. (laughs) So there were shortcut on this shortcuts for that on this computer. So in the first six months of it being introduced to the market, 500,000 units were sold. Uh, pretty impressive, really fast <laughs> for, you know, it was the only computer yeah, at that price point. Well, this is really awesome stuff, <laughs> Jill. Thank you so much for sharing this little device with us. It's funny because when I saw this story and wanted to do a tribute, I thought, who would have a Sinclair that we could show. <laughs> and I asked Jill in a message, I said, do you happen to have one of Sinclair's devices? And Jill jumped in, of course I do. <laughs> yeah. So we get this brilliant glimpse into the work that this man produced. And he obviously made a huge impact on the industry. He made a huge impact for what eventually led someone like Linus to make Linux out there for us. So It's sad that this man's gone, but obviously he's left an amazing impact in the world, in the Mm -hmm. computer industry and things. And so a huge tribute and thank you to him and for all the work that he did out there as a pioneer in the computer industry. Absolutely. So this week's software spotlight is MakeDeb. MakeDeb is a packaging tool for Debian-based systems. They say that it aims to be simple and easy to use while still remaining uh, just as powerful and standard or as the standard Debian tooling. Now, what's interesting about MakeDeb is that it creates packages through the use of package builds, which if you're not familiar, package builds is what you'll see in the AUR. You'll see packages that when, when they when I you use compile, Arch, by the way. Oh, you, oh, <laughs> oh I, I was not aware of this, Ryan. Thank Sorry. you for, so much for telling me. You're welcome. Abruptly. Uh, <laughs> so the, all the AUR packages are package builds, and they basically compile from the, using the package build to create the packages on your system at the install time. And this allows you to take the package builds and create deb files from them, which is kind of interesting because a lot of the package builds in the AUR 
are from deb files. So if you see if you take one from there, you might be going from deb to package build back to deb. It depends on which one it is, but I just thought that was kind of funny. But anyway, if you're interested in doing something like this, take creating your own packages from package builds into Debian-based systems, you can check it out. Uh, and it makes um, a lot of software available to you. You know, basically anything that's in the AUR, you could make for Debian-based systems that's and the cheating. Bunchu and that's Arch's yeah. repository. You're not taking <laughs> it, cheating. Debian folks. Stay away. It's mine. 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 Oh. Mine. And Michael, mine, mine, it, was mine. So, it was so easy to use. I actually installed hand, Handbrake this way. So you just do a make deb tack tack install. And I did Handbrake. Mm. Creates the Debian package. And then sudo apt, sudo apt install Handbrake to install with apt. It was that easy. That's very, very cool. cool. This week is part of your tip of the week. We are going to become more efficient in the terminal. Now, I want to start by dispelling the rumor that you have to use the terminal to get involved with Linux. We're doing an episode about what it takes to lin to get Linux over the finish line. And I I don't like the fact that there is this idea that, oh, you have to you have to go type this magical incantation into the terminal in order to get certain things to happen. Like there's the vast majority of things that you can solve these days on Linux only by exploring the GUI. And the GUI has a number of advantages because it allows you to explore and learn even if you don't know what you're looking for. But when you want to become efficient, when you want to get things done faster, that's when we're going to move over to the terminal. So there's a couple of things I wanted to point out that will make you more efficient in your terminal ventures. First, have you ever gotten to the point where you've typed a command and said to yourself, oh man, I meant to type sudo in front of that. Maybe it's a long, very complicated command. You don't want to retype all that out. Sure, you could go ahead and hit the up arrow, type the home key, add append sudo to the front of it, put a space and Bob's your uncle. But did you know you could do sudo space bang bang, two exclamation marks, and it will repeat the last command that you've done, but of course, adding sudo to it. Most people know that if you do cd uh, dot dot, it will go up a directory. But did you know just cd will take you back to your home directory. <laughs> I've gotten in trouble uh, at more than one client by saying, they said, did you document everything? And I said, yes. And they went, where's the documentation? And I went, bash history. Bash history is documentation, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, but did you know that you can grep through your bash history? Let's say you know you executed a specific command. You say to yourself, self, I need to go back and know what command I executed. Well, you can do the history and then pipe that and then use grep to search through that history to look for that specific command. So we invite you to take a look at documentation for all of this will be provided in the show notes for Destination Linux. We invite you to go back to previous episodes to learn previous tips and tricks as well as follow us in future weeks for upcoming tips and tricks. Also, just a real extra, uh, you know, sitting on top of that one with the bang, bang pseudo thing. That's something that annoyed me so much that I created an alias for it. So <laughs> instead of typing pseudo bang, bang, I just type in dang. <laughs> dang. And then that's it. <laughs> That works. Nice. So before we close out, I did want to talk about any of the Linux events that are going on. And right now, one of the big events that I think everyone could get involved in is the Ubuntu beta testing. Ubuntu mm. 21.10 Impish Injury uh, Beta Week that just kicked off on September 23rd. This includes Ubuntu Desktop, Ubuntu Server, and all the official Ubuntu flavors. So check out the article on Front Page Linux to get more details on getting involved in this testing. But if you've ever been one of those individuals that you install an Ubuntu and something doesn't work and you get mad about it because you have, now's your chance to get involved at the very beginning before it releases, 
talk about, see it, how it works on your hardware, see if there's any issues, get those reported so they can get them fixed. So when Ubuntu 21.10 releases, it's beautiful perfection out there for everyone who enjoys it. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening however you do it to Destination Linux. We love your faces. And if you want more DL, you can become a patron. Like all these beautiful people piped in audio. that We have an audio engineer we paid billions for. His name's Noah. And he pipes all of the audio in so they get the live feed. They don't get the delayed YouTube stuff. They get it live. And they have their own room they get to hang out in. They get all kinds of cool stuff in a 50,000 square foot virtual stadium. You can help support the show. You get access to live recordings of destination linux of course every sunday but you get unedited versions of the show as well which is very cool stuff in addition every sunday at 1 p.m eastern we're now live at dlnlive.com the best part everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. And if you enjoy Destination Linux or, or anything on the Destination Linux network, go to dlnstore.com. You can check out all the great swag that we have for DLN. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and as Noah mentioned earlier, well, actually, I think that was in the unedited version. So if you... Uh, want to watch that part, you can go check out, become a patron, become, check out the unedited version. But you can get an apron so you can twill while you grill and have <laughs> such a great experience. And it, it actually enhances the flavor of the burgers, but just because of that apron. I mean, I, I, there's, there's, people have been doing research, but so far the preliminary results have confirmed that that statement is true that I just made up. So go to dealinstore.com to check it out. And make sure to check out all the amazing shows here on our wonderful Destination Linux network. We have the Pseudo Show, the Ask Noah Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, woohoo, DLN Extend, Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, and get your Fedora hat on with the Fedora podcast. So everyone head to destinationlinux.network and subscribe to all these shows. And don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite app so others can discover the power of open source. And keep those penguins marching and the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everyone have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Have a great Yahoo! week, everyone. See you next week. Bye.